brought to you by Charity Mobile, the phone company that shares your values. More information is available at CharityMobile.com. Given the discussion over access to the Eucharist, and whether or not the Church should take a hard stance with unrepentant public sinners, I thought it was time for uh, something well, a little different than my usual Saturday video. Normally on a Saturday morning I have a papal encyclical or otherwise magisterial document or address from before the Second Vatican Council. Those videos are purely educational in nature, and often are timed to be relevant to whatever it is that we've been talking about during the previous couple of weeks. While this video is not of a magisterial document in nature, it does concern very real action taken by the Church in, on this very question we're dealing with now. So let's have a look at what the Church did in better times when a high-profile public figure who was part of the Church strayed from the path. First, let's get some context. We're talking about ancient Rome. Emperor Constantine had made the Catholic faith approved in the Roman Empire in the early 4th century, and had by reports gone to meet our Lord in the embrace of the Church. So let's fast forward a few decades to the year 390 into the city of Thessalonica, which was a large and populous city in the province of Macedonia. The emperor of that time was Theodosius, who had been brought up in the knowledge of the Gospels and was himself a Catholic, and as a consequence, knew well the distinction between the ecclesiastical and the temporal power. He had worked in partnership with the church on the affairs of the empire in order to forge an understanding of the common good. Now, if you're not familiar with Theodosius, he was the Roman emperor who famously is credited for issuing the Edict of Thessalonica in 380, making the faith the official faith of the empire. He is not to be confused with Constantine, who brought the church out of the shadows in or around 313 AD. While what Constantine did was certainly important, Theodosius's actions were far more significant. After Theodosius, you had to be a Catholic if you had any serious ambitions for your future. Now, it appears that Theodosius took this step because he was a genuine believer and wanted all to follow our Lord and be part of his church. And that is why this story begins to get interesting. Now, I'm going to do something I don't usually do. I'm going to quote a Protestant theologian on this. But to be fair, he does a good job of succinctly summarizing what happened in this whole story. Now, I do have to play with the words you used here for some obvious reasons, as you'll see. Quoting the book by Dr. Brian Harris, quote, In 390, a charioteer in Thessalonica was said to be doing the kinds of things James Martin talks about a lot. The governor of the district had him taken, but the people of the area, who enjoyed his charioteering skills, demanded his release. The governor refused, leading to upheaval in which the governor was slain and the charioteer was released. Incensed on hearing this, Emperor Theodosius, who had been instrumental in having Christianity decreed as the official religion of the Roman Empire, ordered that the residents of the area be punished. At a chariot race in Thessalonica, Theodosius' soldiers trapped those attending inside and within three hours had imposed the ultimate punishment on around 7,000 people. Ambrose, the bishop of Milan, was appalled at this and in the name of the church called on Theodosius to repent. Initially, Theodosius refused and consequently Ambrose would not give him communion. Theodosius stayed away from church for a while, but his commitment to the faith made his situation untenable. He reluctantly accepted Ambrose's terms for reconciliation, which included the promotion of a law which required a delay of 30 days before any such penalty that was passed could be enforced. In front of a crowded congregation, Theodosius took off his imperial robes and asked for forgiveness of his sins. Ambrose initially declined to offer this, but after Theodosius had repeatedly requested it at a church service on, on Christmas Day, Ambrose gave Theodosius the sacraments. End quote. 
Of course, that church service on a Christmas day was the Holy Sacrifice, the Mass, as said by St. Ambrose of Milan, who was also instrumental in the conversion of St. Augustine to the faith. Note that the emperor, the Caesar of his time, was inquired to not only repent, but publicly recant his sins and get down on bended knee in order to be readmitted to the sacraments. And this was done by St. Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan. He wasn't even the local ordinary, let alone the Pope. And the Pope at that time was St. Siricius, who we'll take a sidestep here to talk about. So when our so-called separated brethren talk about how there was never a Pope until Pope St. Leo the Great in the 6th century, they're making an error that shows that they know little of the history of the time. And here's why. Pope St. Siricius was the author of the oldest preserved to-date papal decrees. I'm getting this from newadvent.org. Quote, Immediately upon his elevation, Siricius had occasion to assert his primacy over the universal church. A letter in which questions were asked on 15 different points concerning baptism, penance, church discipline, and the nuptial state of the clergy came to Rome addressed to Pope Damasus by Bishop Himerius of Tarragona, Spain. Siricius answered this letter on the 10th of February, 385 A.D., and gave the decisions as to the matters in question, exercising with full consciousness his supreme power of authority in the Church. This letter of Siricius is of special importance because it is the oldest completely preserved papal decretal, or edict for the authoritative decision of questions of disciplines in canon law. It is, however, certain that before this, earlier popes had also issued such decretals, for Siricius himself in his letter mentions general decrees of Liberius that the latter had sent to the provinces, but these earlier ones have not been preserved. At the same time, the Pope directed Himerius to make known his decrees to the neighboring provinces, so that they should also be observed there. This Pope had very much at heart the maintenance of church discipline and the observance of the canons by the clergy and laity. A Roman synod of January 386, at which 80 bishops were present, reaffirmed in nine canons the laws of the church on various points of discipline, the consecration of bishops, the ordination of priests, etc. End quote. Now, the redacted portion was his ruling on the topic of whether priests could partake of the nuptial sacrament, to which he preserved the contemporary practice. That would, of course, change and fluctuate over time, but the present practice for the priest goes back generally to antiquity in some form or another. And that brings us back to St. Ambrose. The Pope had his hands full at the time governing the Church, having cathedrals built, consecrating bishops, and, of course, running the Diocese of Rome. This was left in the hands of Bishop Ambrose, who, was the, who wasn't even the local ordinary over the emperor at the time, but he was just a very vocal bishop. This begs some questions for our time. Will Pope Francis show the same trust that St. Siricius did in Ambrose? Doubtful, or, more accurately, absolutely, because... Bishop of the Imperial See in our time is Cardinal Wilton Gregory, who has already said that he will not enforce Canon 915 of the Code of Canon Law. For those not familiar with that, here's Canon 915 of the 1983 Code, as well as Canon 916, which I think is also pertinent here. Quote, Those who have been excommunicated or interdicted after the imposition or declaration of the penalty, and others obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. Canon 916, a person who is conscious of grave sin is not to celebrate Mass or receive the body of the Lord without previous sacramental confession, unless there is a grave reason, and there is no opportunity to confess. In this case, the person is to remember the obligation to make a, an act of perfect contrition, which includes the resolution of confessing as soon as possible. End quote. There's a lot there that begs some questions about the modernists and the clergy, but let's stay on topic here as I close this out. As has been said by numerous observers, including, I think, Father Z on Twitter, a priest does not need permission of his bishop to enforce canon law. 
nor does a bishop need the permission of a fictional organization like the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. And I say fictional because they have no canonical standing in the church. The National Bishops' Conferences are a post-conciliar invention that haven't even been really formalized except in, the, in each country in question. Any of them could and should enforce these rules without worrying about what the person the next step up the ladder thinks. Now, maybe it can be argued that it would be prudent for the priest to inform his bishop or to be aware of what his bishop thinks on the matter, but strictly speaking, the code of canon law makes this whole discussion rather moot. And then throw in the various stories of history like that of St. Ambrose and Theodosius, and you get a clear picture for all to see. So I hope you found this little trip in Catholic history entertaining and informative. We could certainly use a few St. Ambroses today, although that's probably always the case, and even a, Saint, even a Theodosius, given that he sorrowfully repented of his sins publicly. But I don't think we'll see that today, in our time, on this issue. But maybe I'll be wrong. <laughs> I'd really like to be. Let me know what you think of this in the comments, please, and like and subscribe if you haven't. Next Saturday, we'll return to our normal magisterial documents, most likely. Although, let me know if you liked these, uh, if you like these sort of periodic peering back into Catholic history for some context on what we're talking about today. Because if so, I'll probably do more of them. Until then, pray for the Church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.